This is still Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. These long months of lockdown have been busy ones for patent litigators. We'll speak to an expert about why virtual IP trials have been so plentiful and about how they'll change litigation in the federal court going forward. Also on this episode, we'll hear about new guidance in the Ontario courts on preferred pronouns and prefixes, and we'll talk about the immunology of double vaccination and about what it means for your summer. Law in the Time of COVID-19 explores the law and policy of pandemic response and recovery. We're looking at how governments, organizations, and individuals are managing the impact and meeting the moment. And because it wouldn't be a law firm podcast without a disclaimer, here's a disclaimer. McCarthy Tatro is providing this podcast as a public service, if we may say so ourselves. It may contain legal information, but it does not contain legal advice or a legal opinion, recommendation, or statement of policy of McCarthy Tatro. Here's our episode, Patents, Pronouns, and Second Doses. Let me start with an apology and an explanation. It's been a long time since our last episode, and for that, I'm sorry. When we launched Law in the Time of COVID-19, back in the spring of 2020, most of us had unexpected time on our hands. I was no exception. I'd been busy gearing up for a contentious pretrial conference, examinations for discovery, and a long trial. All were postponed. It all seems blissful in hindsight, the suddenly empty schedule, the disrupted cadence of the workday, the novelty of working from home. At the time, of course, it was stressful and terrifying. We disinfected our takeout containers and tuned in to daily press conferences by politicians and public health authorities, and we used the word unprecedented an unprecedented number of times. Long before vaccine hunters, we were Lysol hunters and toilet paper hunters, told to trust the supply chain, but never totally convinced that we could. As lawyers, we were called upon to advise on legal issues that were as unfamiliar to us as they were to our clients. What powers did governments have to respond to a public health emergency on a, wait for it, unprecedented scale? What obligations did businesses have to their employees and their customers with a pathogen in the air? How would the legal professions, never keen to change, adjust to working at a distance? And so, naturally, we started a podcast. It came fast and furious at first. Like I said, I didn't have a whole lot to do, and neither did my colleagues who used to plan in-person events at our firm. We figured out how to record and edit episodes, and together we launched Law in the Time of COVID-19. The idea was to keep ourselves busy while keeping you, our listeners, informed. Some 16 months later, our day jobs haven't just resumed their previous pace. We're busier than ever. The podcast slipped onto the back burner. But though it's been a long while since our last episode, and it might be a long while before our next one, we mean to keep doing law in the time of COVID-19. Because even as vaccinations promise a return to something like normal, we're betting that the time of COVID-19 will be with us in some form for a while yet. Which brings me to this episode. As a litigator, my experience of the pandemic has been of a sudden slowdown, followed by a gradual crescendo back to full blast, and now better. For my colleagues who are IP litigators, IP stands for intellectual property, the ramp-up was speedier and also more significant. They've been doing back-to-back -back patent trials since last summer. 
As our guest today will explain, that's in part because of pre-pandemic changes to the Patent Medicine's Notice of Compliance, or PMNOC, regulations, which govern how pharmaceutical patents are challenged and defended in court. My guest is Tracy Doyle, an associate in McCarthy Tatro's National IP Litigation Group in Toronto. Not only is Tracy now an expert on virtual patent litigation, she's also one of the lawyers responsible for an important recent change to court practices in Ontario. The Court Services Division of the Ministry of the Attorney General has issued a direction to all court staff that they may ask hearing participants to provide their preferred pronouns. Lawyers, litigants, and witnesses are also encouraged to provide their preferred pronouns and prefixes proactively. This follows a similar move in my home province of British Columbia. Finally, while we have Tracy with us, I'll ask her about vaccines and about what it actually means for our day-to-day lives now that an increasing number of Canadians are fully vaccinated. You see, Tracy isn't just an IP lawyer. She's also a doctor of immunology. I spoke with Dr. Tracy Doyle on Thursday, June 17th. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, you are our first guest in a very long while, and we could not ask for someone more knowledgeable about litigation in the time of COVID-19 and, in fact, about COVID-19 itself. As we will come to, you are not only an IP litigator, you are also a doctor of immunology. So we'll we'll come to, to taking advantage of that knowledge later on in the discussion. But let me start with your day job. You're an IP litigator, and you, like a number of my colleagues who are doing IP litigation, seem to be unusually busy during this period of virtual litigation. Why is that? Yeah, Adam, it is is actually an unprecedented time. Um, McCarthy's, the IP team at McCarthy's has actually done six virtual trials since the pandemic started. I myself have done three trials in seven months. Holy moly. It it is unprecedented. And I don't know if I can really put my finger on why uh, IP litigation matters are really coming to a head right now, why it is so busy. But I think probably part of that is uh, the change in the the PMNOC regulations in 2017. So in September of 2017, the PMNOC regulations changed such that any um, action or any like NOA notice of allegation brought by, for example, a generic was converted into an action. And because of that, we have to finish our actions. There has to be from start to finish from the statement of claim to the decision that has to happen in 24 months. Wow. Okay. And so, yeah, because of the expedited timeline, it is just a flood of work, Uh, particularly because now that it's converted into actions, uh, discovery is in play, document discovery is in play. Now, whereas before with the previous uh, regime, it was only applications. And so we didn't have to worry about discoveries. Mm. And so I so, think that that, that really has a, a huge part in how busy we are. Now, I, I assume that this change at least was contemplated or was kind of coming down the pike even before everything shut down in person because of COVID-19, yeah? Yes, yeah, that's right. So, yeah, so the, even to force in 2017, way before the pandemic. But the thing is, is that there weren't very many started in early 2017, and they really sort of started to ramp up in 2018. And so the two-year deadline kind of settled on 2020, 2021. Oh, wow. Okay. Started, right? Yeah. So that's and, why there's been so many trials. And did the federal court not not postpone, could, could it postpone the two-year 
time limit for these things or did or, or would parliament have had to do that i mean it, it seems surprising to me that when so much else in litigation saw time stop between march and september of last year that these things seem to press on unrelentingly all the way through the the darkest months of the pandemic yeah so the federal court uh, under the regulations they could have actually extended the stay i mean that has a lot of implications um and you know being uh, Candidly, I'm, I'm part of the innovator uh, side of things when it comes to pharmaceutical litigation. Um, you know, the generics would have to, I don't know if they would have to agree to it, but uh, surely they would fight against it. But I, I think also uh, there was a bit of a stay at the very beginning of the pandemic, but the federal courts, um, I think particularly compared to many of the other courts, were already very much um, electronically like set. Right. And so they really, the federal courts really pushed forward to have virtual hearings. And to put that into context, um, I, my, I was on the trial, my very first virtual trial was representing Bell and Tellus against Roby. And that was originally set down for May 25th. Uh, there was a stay in place, but then it, it took up and it, it, it basically went to trial mid-July. So the stay was not very long, you know, no. the federal court sort of paused things, they figured everything out, and then they said, okay, here we go, we're jumping in. So, That's, yeah. Yeah. I remember, so, I remember seeing the the virtual courtroom you all had set up on the 53rd floor of our offices in Toronto, which was quite an elaborate and exciting setup and has now become sort of standard issue for virtual hearings of all kinds that we've been doing from our offices all throughout the pandemic. So you were you were an innovator in that respect, not just representing innovators in, in your practice. Um, but when I think of IP litigation matters and IP trials in particular, and I'm not an IP litigator, I think of technical complexity, not in terms of actually doing the trial and doing it virtually, but in terms of the subject matter and the the charts and the graphics and the various things that you have as demonstrative aids in order to establish your case in litigating those sorts of matters. How has that all been in terms of the transition to doing things virtually? Because I would imagine that in many respects, you're all much more technically minded than the average litigator who ran screaming away from math class in grade 11 and has never looked back. But at the other, on the other hand, you also just have a lot more stuff that would need to be moved online in order to litigate in this kind of form. How has that transition been? Yeah, you know, so the transition to virtual hearings, at least from my perspective, has been great. I, I think, you know, the IP litigation bar in general has adapted wonderfully to this. And it's, um, you know, to be, it, 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 I really hope actually that it, as a result, we'll have more electronic trials, not virtual hearings, but electronic trials. Because to be able to, for example, uh, give an opening statement and share your screen on Zoom so that the judge knows exactly where you are, you know, it, it's very, very, uh, it's helpful, helpful to the court, frankly. It's, it's helpful to the, to the litigators. Um, additionally, you know, if you're cross-examining a witness to be able to share your screen, have the witness see exactly what you're pointing to, have the judge see exactly what you're pointing to, right. and the witness can have control of the screen if they want. They can navigate the document in any which way they want. But, you know, I think that it is really sort of advancing uh, the litigation means. Like, it, it is really advancing the way in which I think court will be heard in the future, to be honest. It's... It's, it's incredibly convenient. It's right. very good at both ends. So let, let me 
push you on the distinction between electronic trials and virtual trials or, or, or electronic aspects of litigation and, and doing full virtual trials. Do you anticipate that when you're doing these sorts of, of patent litigation matters after the courts have reopened in person, that there will nevertheless be certain matters where, because of where the witnesses are, where counsel is, it makes sense to still cross-examine witnesses over Zoom so you can share your screen? Or, or how strongly, in other words, will the default return to being in-person litigation with a witness in the witness box and doing things the way we used to do them? Right. So I, I think um, I, I recently participated in the federal court town hall uh, at the IP day. And the strong preference for the court is to return back to in-person witnesses, but they are always open to, for example, hybrid trials, where, for example, if a witness can't quite make it, if it doesn't make sense to fly them in, they're open to having uh, the witness uh, be presented virtually, being cross-examined virtually. I mean, if anything, the pandemic has taught us that we can do it. Um, but there is a distinction between a virtual trial and electronic trial. And what I mean by that is the difference between having a paper record and electronic record. So for example, in a PMNOC case, the record is just, it, it, it's just massive. We're talking, you know, 30 volumes for a paper for the record. And so I think there might be a strong preference now to have that done electronically. There is now a mechanism in the federal court, it's called the uh, e-toolkit, where you upload all of the documents to the electronic toolkit and then the judge can just pull them up as, as required. And then you can share your screen, for example, on Zoom. In an electronic court, uh, so many of, some of the courtrooms in the federal court have screens, for example, and you would be able just to share the screen on the screen in front of the witness so they can see electronically what you're referring to. So it sort of removes the necessity of having actually a paper record, having all of these volumes of paper and just kind of flipping to exhibits and flipping to page numbers. And it actually expedites, for example, the cross-examination time. There's no need for paper flipping. Uh, so I think that might be the way that the court will be leaning to in the future. It's, it's kind of astonishing when you think about it, that you were previously doing trials with, with volume. I mean, we all were with records that voluminous and not having the ability for the judge to control F their way through the record, to find things that they need to find when they're preparing their reasons or, or even just following along with a witness. This sounds like the, the uh, uh, innovations that belong in the category of why weren't we doing this before? Yes, agreed. It's, it's, it's the same reason why, why did we have fax machines before? <laughs> you know, I think the pandemic has really shed some light on our Luddite, Luddite-ness, uh, you know, there were so many better ways to do it before we just never caught on. Right. Well, speaking of doing things in better ways, and, and this is a, something of an artificial segue, but it does have to do with what litigation is going to be like and participation in the justice system will be like as of now and then going forward after the pandemic. There was recently a decision from, or, or rather new guidance from the, the administration of the Ontario court system about forms of address and, and preferred pronouns in the justice system for justice system participants. Now, Tracy, you were involved in, in the process of developing that guidance and working with, uh, with other members of the justice sector to ensure that, that it was put in place. How did that come about and, and what can you tell us about what's different now than it was before? Yeah, so uh, in the summer of 2020, um, due to a number of factors, it really, 
uh, was obvious to me that there was a pronoun issue in the courts. And mainly, it always really bothered me that whenever I was participating in any sort of proceeding or in discoveries, the court reporter would request how, you know, do I want to be referred to as Miss, Mr. or Doctor on the transcript. And it just really, really bothered me that there was not another option. And so, uh, as you know, Adam, I'm part of the queer community. I have a wonderful wife, incredible kids. Um, and I think by part of that, I have had a lot of exposure and I have a lot of friends who are gender non-binary and who identify as trans. And so at the end of the summer uh, of 2020, I reached out to our chief inclusion officer, Nikki Gershaban, and said, listen, this is a problem and I know that we can fix it. Like it's an easy fix. And so who do I have to talk to, to to get this ball going? And so she referred me to Tammy Moscow, who uh, is, is counsel of the courts division at MAG. And I got in contact with her and basically told her like what the issue was and then was able to work with her to get the change made in the Ontario courts. And so uh, recently what has been announced by the Ontario courts is that you can, there's two ways that you can self-identify. It's voluntary identification. And so you can identify if it's a virtual hearing, you can tell the court how you identify and put your pronouns as a part of your Zoom name, for example. But there is also a court participant form that you can fill out uh, and that counsel can fill out for counsel and witnesses. And you can voluntarily identify your pronoun or your prefixes. And if you identify, for example, as gender non-binary, on the transcript, you will be referred to as MX. And that's pronounced as mix for those who don't know. Um, and so, yeah, it, it completely provides an option for people to do this. I think uh, as in, you know, identifying your pronouns at the end of your email signature, for any of us who are perhaps not a part of the queer community or who are, you know, cis-identifying, um, it, it really is a show of allyship to, for example, in the Ontario courts, to put your pronouns, to self-identify, to let people who might otherwise be hesitant know that it is okay to identify. And I know personally as myself, um, I know it's a podcast, people out there can't see me, but right now, you know, I'm in, <laughs> I'm in a bow tie. I have what uh, anyone in the queer community would call a thousand footer haircut. You can tell I'm a lesbian from a thousand feet away. Um, but you know, I, I have been misgendered so many times. Like I, I cannot tell you the number of Uber drivers who have referred to me as sir. Right. And even though I understand how that can happen, it's still extremely frustrating. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it is, you know, even when I'm appearing now, even before the federal courts, when I appear, I always have my pronouns beside my name because I don't want to have any sort of awkward interaction where someone misgenders me and calls me Mr. Doyle. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of a cloak of protection to make sure it doesn't happen. And I'm happy to say that I've taken steps and I've been, I've recently been working, in fact, I took steps, but I've recently been been informed that steps have already been taken to get the ball rolling in the federal court system. And so now I'm involved in that initiative, and I'm very excited to see that through. What do you say? I mean, this is this is me playing devil's advocate, but but what do you say to those who, when they receive this guidance, think this is too much progress too quickly, or this is going too far, or this is I mean, one argument that, that we, we are all familiar with, I, unfortunately, is that this is a, a constraint on my freedom of expression and you can't tell me how I'm supposed to refer to somebody else and so on and so forth. What is the, I'm, I'm sure you have thought through these potential objections and what is your answer to them? Well, 
you know, it's, it's honestly just about respect and it's about respecting other people and respecting how they identify. I can tell you that in all of the courts committees that I participated in in the last year, there has been unanimous support. And I think people really are starting to understand that, you know, I have no personal stake in how someone else identifies. And I realize, for example, that using the pronouns, I remember the very first person, the very first friend I ever had who came out as gender non-binary. And it, it's tough to use pronouns, for example, like they, them, and, and to get used to it. But I can tell you that that community understands the difficulty and they, they understand if you make a mistake, you just say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake, you know? And it, it sounds kind of silly, but something that we actually did uh, very early on in our house, our kids' first Christmas, we got an elf on the shelf and we decided to make the elf on the shelf gender non-binary so that all of us would be used to using the pronouns they, them. <laughs> and, and then a couple of years later, my mom inadvertently referred to the elf on the shelf as him. And my three-year-old promptly corrected her and said, no, it's they, them. <laughs> That's awesome. But, you know, it's, it's an easy fix. You know, it's something, it's all about respect. It's just about respecting the other person, respecting people for what they identify with and truly understanding. Imagine, so, you know, my, my friends who identify with the pronoun with which their, their gender, you know, is in accord. Uh, imagine being misgendered your entire life. Imagine how difficult that would be, you know, and, and just accept the fact that it would be so frustrating. And so imagine the frustration and the pain that you are putting onto someone else by insisting that you misgender them. And so I, I just think it takes a little bit of an open mind and a real understanding of the issue at hand, how difficult it is for some people. Yeah, I think the way that I think of it is, you know, it's it, lawyers, whenever we think about rules of practice or, or the way in which one is supposed to behave in a courtroom, we always think about ourselves first. And I think that's sort of a professional character flaw. Really, it seems to me this guidance is primarily for justice system participants who aren't lawyers who are ordinary litigants, who are witnesses in proceedings, who are not trained about how they are to behave in a courtroom and who aren't comfortable, who are inevitably going to be uncomfortable in a courtroom. Maybe not everybody, but it's a daunting environment. And those of us who spend our days and our careers inhabiting those spaces and becoming comfortable in those spaces, I think can forget that it's intimidating to appear in front of a judge, to be giving evidence under oath in a courtroom with, you know, wood paneling on the walls and a big coat of arms behind a judge who's sitting up on a bench. So if we care about access to justice, which we always profess to do, surely we should be looking for every potential barrier to the comfort of those who are participating in the justice system to do so openly and as themselves and comfortably. It doesn't mean it should be a comfortable experience in all ways at all times. I mean, if you're going to be cross-examined on your evidence, that's not going to be fun, nor should it be fun necessarily. But if we can look for these small irritants, and they're more than irritants because they go to who a person is and, and how they identify and who they, who they are, those, those, those sorts of things, surely we should scrape the barnacles off the system and allow access to be more seamless and less onerous on anyone who's participating in it. I, 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 I've now switched out of devil's advocate mode and I'm, and I'm in violent agreement with you, but, but I, just, I do struggle to understand where the, where the objections come from when people react negatively to these sorts of developments. We've now, we've now seen that there is guidance to this effect in British Columbia, now in Ontario. It's great to hear that it's coming in the federal courts. Have you had any contact or, or have, you, have you reached out to colleagues in other jurisdictions about 
elsewhere in Canada following, I guess we're all following British Columbia's lead, but other jurisdictions doing now what Ontario has done? So I, I have not as of yet, but I'm confident that once the change is made in the federal courts, the other provinces will quickly follow suit. That's excellent. All right. Last subject I wanted to cover with you, uh, Dr. Doyle, if I may, if I may choose a prefix for you for this last uh, uh, area of conversation, uh, is about the pandemic itself. Um, you, like many uh, IP litigators, have a science background and, and your PhD in immunology, I think, has led you probably to read the newspaper differently than the rest of us uh, over the last 15 months. And so where, given where we are now with a significant percentage of the population having received our first dose of the vaccine, this rollout of the second doses is happening quickly. How do you, uh, what, what is your own kind of take on, on two issues? The first of which is what kind of second dose of the vaccine should I get? And should I be waiting for the same type of vaccine that I got for the first dose? Or is it okay to mix and match? And if I got AstraZeneca, should I wait until I can get AstraZeneca? Or can I get an mRNA vaccine as my second dose? I know there's a lot of confusion among among us lay readers of the newspaper on that question. And then, and then second of all, you know, once we are all vaccinated, is that kind of the end of it? Are we then in the post-pandemic era? What do the next couple of months look like once people do get their second dose? So I'll ask you to respond to those two questions. I'll pose them at once in, in very bad practice as a litigator. I will compound my two questions. What, what do we make of this? Which vaccine should I have as a second dose? And how do I go about making that decision for myself and for my loved ones? And then second of all, when does this end? And what does the second dose rollout mean for our society? Yeah, so to the first question, I mean, the answer is uh, easy. It's, it's take the first dose that you can get. And so if you had an AstraZeneca dose at the very beginning and the next dose offered to you is an mRNA vaccine, take it. Um, what we know is that if you mix the doses, so if you have, for example, an AstraZeneca uh, first dose, and then you have an mRNA second dose, we know that you have uh, marginally stronger immunogenicity. So that means protection against the virus, um, particularly against this new Delta variant that is kind of raging uh, throughout Canada. I believe that Ontario, as the Ontario board estimated 46% of cases is now this new variant. And so there's, there's more protection against that. Uh, because there's higher immunogenicity, you can expect uh, some more severe side effects. So I would recommend, you know, if you have scheduled your dose for mRNA vaccine, maybe don't try to work the next couple of days if you can, or try to book, try, just anticipate that you might not be able to do a couple things. Um, you might have, you know, a headache, chills, whatever. But, but take the first dose that is offered to you. So to put that into perspective, uh, my wife got the AstraZeneca dose the first time and she got the AstraZeneca dose the second time uh, at my encouragement. I got the Pfizer dose the first time and I'm actually scheduled to get the Moderna dose tomorrow for the second time. So really, you know, the answer is if you mix and match, you're likely to get higher protection, uh, like marginally higher. But really take the first second dose that's offered to you. I, I think that's that's absolutely my best advice to anyone who would ask me. Okay. And so what happens when people get their second doses? Does life go back to normal? So uh, I, I, think I think somewhat yes, somewhat no. So our um, take on it is that once we are, so once we are double vaccinated, what's important to realize 
is that none of the vaccines provide 100% protection, protection against a person contracting the disease. And so because of that, by virtue of that, um, it means that you could contract COVID-19, not know that you've contracted it, and pass it on to someone who was unvaccinated. So if there are people in your life who you are very close with, like you live with, for example, who are unvaccinated, then I would highly recommend that you still take some precautions. So for example, in our life, we, I have twin five-year-olds and it's unanticipated that there will be a vaccine for them until January, 2022. And so we have reconciled to the fact that we will have to take some sort of precaution. Uh, what we've agreed upon and, and what I think the research shows is that if we know for sure someone is double vaccinated, then we are fine having them in our house unmasked uh, we're fine being indoors with them unmasked. If we know that someone is single vaccinated, then we are fine being, for example, on a patio with them outside. But if we don't know that someone is vaccinated, then we are hesitant to be in close proximity to them until our own kids are vaccinated. Uh, once our kids are vaccinated and everyone else in our life that we know is double vaccinated, we're fine going to life as we know it. But until then, uh, we really don't wanna take that step. The other thing to note is that given the, the variability of COVID-19, given the way that it, it uh, mutates, it's highly likely that we'll probably have to have booster shots every year, uh, very similar to the influenza virus. And will those booster shots, will we at the very least, I, this you may not know the answer to this, will we at the very least be able to get the booster shots at the same time we get our flu shot, or am I going to have to be getting lots of needles every, every year for the rest of my life? Just set my expectations here, Dr. Doyle. Yeah, so I'm not sure if you'll be able to get it at the same time as the flu virus. You might be able to, but it depends upon side effects from getting both at the same time. Uh, I'm very confident that those studies have not yet been conducted. So if, you know, there might be way more severe side effects from the vaccines if you get them both together. What I do know is that with the mRNA vaccines, they are uh, very easy to manipulate to accommodate for variations in the COVID-19 virus, far more than our current influenza virus. In fact, I predict that our influenza vaccines will soon um, change to be mRNA vaccines because they're so easily manipulated. Huh. Uh, so, so that I know, but depending on the vaccine or sorry, depending on the side effects, you might not be able to get them at the same time. Now have there, last question, have there ever been moments in the last 15, 16 months as we've gone through this pandemic where you have second guessed your decision to leave immunology to become a litigator? Well, I can tell you that my PhD supervisor asked me to come back to Health Canada to study it. <laughs> but well, uh, <laughs> but I, I have not actually regretted it, uh, but I have answered a lot of questions. Well, I can imagine, and thank you for answering mine. And, and I can say selfishly as your colleague that I am glad you did not leave us to go back to, uh, to science and that you continue to, uh, to serve those who innovate and to help those who are developing new technologies by defending their interests in court. So thank you, Dr. Tracy Doyle, for your time today. It's a pleasure to talk to you, and I hope we'll have the chance to chat again. Excellent. Thank you so much, Adam. It was great being here. Tracy Doyle is an associate in McCarthy Tatro's National Intellectual Property Litigation Group, based in Toronto. Law in the Time of COVID-19 is produced by the incomparable Chloe Thomas. Special thanks to Lara Nathans, Trevor Lawson, Judith McKay, Elizabeth Burks, Ali Adams, and the entire team here at McCarthy Tatro. Not literally here, of course, but you know what I mean. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to do the same. <laughs>
You can also find lots more content on our firm's Business Transformation Hub, which you can reach from the main page of our website at www.mccarthy.ca. This is Law in the Time of COVID-19. I'm Adam Goldenberg. Thanks for listening, and please, when it's your turn, get your shot.